Hi everyone, this is Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal. I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. Uh, so today we have Melanie Baylor. She is the Lead Portfolio Manager for the very new uh, Climate Transition Strategy as well as the New Capital Climate Transition Fund. Uh, so Melanie, welcome. Thank you very much, Ross. Thanks for having me. So um, climate transition is obviously a topic that is obviously very, very popular. But before we sort of go into that, I thought, so Melanie, we'll dig into a little bit your background. Uh, you know, when did you join, uh, you know, EFG? Uh, and, you know, talk a little bit about the passion for the, for the topic. Yeah, sure. Always happy to talk about my passion. So, um, yeah, I joined EFG in 2017, um, so over six years now. My background is in banking and finance, so that's what I've studied, that's what I've done ever since. But my personal motivation, dedication, and what I now also focus on professionally is sustainability. So I think just I care about my family. I care about the people on this planet. So um, I think if you get that feeling, you realize that really everything is connected. And so we're all together in this and uh, we have quite some challenges on the environment side. And so I would just like to do my part, especially also being a mother. I have a four-year-old son um, working 100%. And so for me, it's important one day when he comes back to me and asks myself, hey, mommy, why did you spend all that time apart? What did you do during that time? I would like to tell him, you know, at least it was time well spent. I, I... try to do something good i i try to make a difference in the field of my expertise so that's my motivation so to tell us about the journey um was it a passion you always had when you were you know, very young or is this something that maybe you know once uh, once you had your mm-hmm. your son that um uh that it made you really think about it uh, you know did you care about it before and uh, or was this always in in your you know in your upbringing it wasn't in my upbringing i, I think um we were always like close to nature i, I loved to be in the forest playing just with sticks and stones that was always like in my dna but um it really took me growing up um getting to know myself better what is important for me and also to get to know the world better to understand where where are we at the moment? What, what are major problems, challenges that we face as um, humanity? And uh, so when I got to know myself better, my priorities, what is really important to me, and got to learn about the external uh, situation, that's when my uh, p- passion came together. And uh, so I was already working in the financial industry back then. And uh, so my question was then, uh, do I need to change? change industry or can I just make a shift within my professional life? And I realized, actually, um, 
I just need to slightly change my focus um, in what companies I'm investing, which uh, funds I'm managing, and I can really um, do this because then I can use my expertise that I have in the financial industry and really make a difference where I also know how things work um, best. And uh, yeah, when my son um, was born, it just um, increased that importance that urge to to contribute and um yeah as i said to really justify for what i am working so hard so many hours every day so one of the um i guess the criticisms around esg or climate investing and certainly you know different parts of the world have different attitudes to it you know i always think of mm-hmm. you know texas versus switzerland for example was a very yeah. different <laughs> attitude towards um uh you know climate but i guess the sort of deep-seated to this it always seems to be like a political narrative rather than necessarily something that needs to be you know uh, that is good for the for the economy or the or the or the world at large uh, how do you feel about that um, you know, I, I think certainly now it seems to be much more politicized. You know, it seems like a very much a um, let's call it left versus right, you know, point of view. How do you make that sort of distinction? And you know, how do you explain to people that this is actually not a political topic, but is a topic for every citizen of the globe? Yeah, it's a big question. And, um, you know, everything climate related, it seems is very complex and you have a lot of battles to fight. So maybe we cannot, yeah, take on all the battles at once. So um, I understand that, um, especially when you look at it from a global perspective, um, there are quite different opinions across the globe, but also just within um, s- single groups. There are very opinionated people, um, uh, opinionated discussions uh, happening and taking place. Um, I think for me, it's important. It's it's moving forward. So we have, especially in Europe, um, we, we've seen a lot of um, good developments, a strong focus on the environment. Um, in the US, there's a big debate, as you mentioned, but, but also there we see on the political side, I mean, with the U.S. Infla- Inflation Reduction Act, I mean, that's really a, a, a game changer, right? So that was still possible in this political environment in the U.S. So I'm... I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. I think you have to be when you um, focus on this topic. And um, what I try is, you know, pick your battles. So I don't try to convince people that have a different political opinion, but maybe I can provide them some facts. And um, I read also a lot of books about the environment, about um, the challenges we face. And I read the books from the environmentalists and I read the books from the skeptics and um, what I find what is interesting is that also the skeptics agree on the basics which is climate change is real it's a problem it's something we need to tackle but maybe we don't all agree on the solution and um, so my focus is okay we agree climate change is a problem and then let's focus on the opportunity. And I think here we can really benefit. And here it's not political anymore. It's not only about the environment. It's really about also an investment opportunity. And because this climate change um, 
requires the transformation of our whole economy. And that, I think, is the opportunity, no matter which political angle you think is is the right one. I think that's something I think most people can can agree on. Um, certainly, there'll always be sceptics. I don't think you'll ever change their minds. Um, yeah. I think the other sort of point that people need to realise we and, and it feels like this sometimes is that people's opinions are being forced upon them uh, and I think um, people in general don't necessarily always like to be told what they should be doing right so mm. you know with their lives and I think that's where where I think certainly from a political perspective you know this sort of getting away from this sense of enforcement to yep. education and responsibility rather than you you've got to do this otherwise you know this will happen to you um and i think that there is a a very subtle difference and as a education responsibility i think is should be the key narrative that's used rather than enforcement um mm-hmm. and maybe enforcement means we'll get further but you'll constantly have this battle of political wills on enforcement uh, language uh, and I think that's uh, certainly that's my my opinion with respect to the topic and how to make progress faster than getting sort of bogged down into uh, into these political fights. And when you mention education, I think communication is the key, right? Um, and when it comes to communication, it seems that in the past, when we listened to um, climate scientists, they focused a lot on predictions. And uh, I, I just recently read a, a great analogy that uh, shows you the problem with prediction. So uh, they take this frog analogy. Uh, and so there's a frog bathing in the water and um, the, 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 he asks, you know, one and a half degrees warmer, why should, should I care? And, and then he got, gets the answer from the scientists, I predict that in five minutes the water will be one and a half degrees warmer than it is right now. So what does the frog do? He just stays where he is because one and a half degrees, so why should I care? But if you give him a risk assessment, so you change just slightly the narrative and says, you ask, okay, what's the worst that could happen? And the worst is you could boil to death. And how likely is that? Yeah, in five minutes, it's unlikely. In 10 minutes, it's more likely than not. And in 15 minutes, it's a certainty. What does the frog do? He just jumps right out of the water. So I think just we have to do the right studies, communicate communicate the right information so that people also can relate. So I think that's also just a challenge with, with uh, yeah, these um, temperature predictions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so let's moving on. So um, obviously... You know, we have at EFG and uh, have a very unique perspective in terms of climate and uh, and, and climate change. And, um, you know, we use terminology such as the regenerative economy uh, and words like circular and linear are left behind. Maybe you can just explain the differences between that. Climate transition for us is, is the transition from today's linear economy to a regenerative economy. So a linear economy takes more a narrow perspective, focusing mainly on 
profit. Um, in the past, for example, it, it was also like terms like shareholder focus belong to that linear economy. We're now gradually moving towards a circular economy. And here we see that we focus more on sustainability. We um, try to um, sustain what we have, so sustainability, so at least we don't do harm. Um, so that's where we're moving. But the the ultimate goal is a regenerative economy because a regenerative economy takes a holistic perspective. So not only on profit, but also considers the environment and society. And um, it's not only about preserving what we have and um, doing less bad, it's about doing more good. So it's about a positive impact. And um, so for us, we have this vision, uh, this vision for a better future, let's say. So we don't only focus on what is um, bad today, what needs to be improved today, but really focus also, okay, where do we have to go to? So this is this climate transition to a regenerative economy. That's our ultimate vision. Um, and uh, that's this transformation is what transforms our whole economy. And we see this transition is already on the way. So um, it's already happening. So, okay, we start with this um, you know, strong point of view. Uh, how do we then, in terms of uh, you know geographical or sector um, exposure within the strategy, how do we then sort of take the next steps? Uh, how do we filter out the ones that we just don't own either sector-wise or from a company-wise basis? Yeah, so maybe to to mention first is because we have this broad vision of a better future. So this vision that we have to transition to a regenerative economy and this transformation of the whole economy, the result is a very broadly diversified portfolio. So we are invested in across sectors, across regions. So um, don't think of the usual like wind and solar satellite portfolio, but the result, because we have such a broad perspective, holistic perspective, um, the portfolio is then really um, well diversified across the economy. Um, now, um, our approach, how we um, come from this macro view to the portfolio is that we've identified the seven transition sectors that are most important when it comes to the problem. So they are the major emitters in terms of emissions. But these seven sectors are then also the major beneficiaries of this transformation of our economy. And uh, specifically, we have um, a four-step process and um, so first, it's more a top-down perspective we take. So to um, assess what companies are really contributing to a transition, which companies are benefiting, are the beneficiaries of this transformation. And then we do more um, the, the standard, the traditional bottom-up analysis to also validate the positions from a, um, a fundamental perspective, perspective uh, portfolio perspective. So uh, it's obviously... Yeah. Um, uh, a very optimistic view of the world, right? So it's uh, it's not a pessimistic view, which is you know, sometimes, um, um, uh, I guess, uh, ESG stra strategies in particular, sustainable strategies, tend to have this sort of rather pessimistic pessimistic bent um, rather than this optimistic bent. Uh, maybe you can just take us through, say, a sector that 
maybe traditionally would not be you know as viewed as sort of climate friendly and how transition is appearing in that sector yeah so um regarding your first point uh it's true we focus more on the transition winners than the transition risks right so it's not about risk mitigation in the forefront but really um benefit from this opportunity um when it comes to um the sectors uh, uh let's take uh, for example the oil sector so uh, oil companies um i, I think uh, that's always uh, top of mind when it comes to those discussions and um just to make our point so we in- invest in the transition beneficiaries and um, so it's about companies that can make a change, that can contribute to a transition. So who can contribute? It's a oil company. It's 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 possible. But the difference is, does this company really have a tangible? climate action plan so are there credible targets granular targets in place to really transition in this case to um, clean um, energy technologies um, do they really put money there so when you look at R&D at capex do you see them investing it in that space that's that's the difference so an oil company can be a, a welcome transitioner or, or not at all. So um, it's not the sector that defines which companies we're investing, but really how the company itself is positioned, committed, and driving this transition, contributing to this transition. So there's obviously within, say, an energy sector, um, uh, you know, looking at CapEx, where the marginal money is going to, you know, are they moving to carbon neutrality as their, as their kind of long-term target? Um, uh, you know, are there sort of, um, policies in place, processes in place, um, uh, clear strategy and vision uh, to to achieve those. Um, so typically when you're sitting in with a management team uh, talking about those sort of targets, what are the sort of typical things you are, uh, you know, looking for? And maybe, you know, the danger with all of these, especially company CEOs, they're very, very good salesmen about their own companies, but don't necessarily um, believe it or you know have the the real sort of targets to to uh, or impetus, should I say, to achieve those targets. You know, what are the typical questions that you're asking for management? Yeah, first of all, before we start talking with management and get their sales pitch, we also have our own climate engine, we call it. So our proprietary develop tool that helps us assess the company from a from a, a quantitative perspective and also make predictions about the future. So not only look at the um, past um, the track record and emissions, but really also um, make uh, predictions uh, um, into the future. So we don't only rely on what the company is saying we really look also at hard um, data tangible data but then when talking to management that for me is really the exciting part because um you know it, it's about credibility tangibility and uh I had uh, quite interesting um, experiences in the past uh, when I, for example, I usually um, read their whole uh, sustainability report. So to have like the basic basics there. And uh, if you start asking questions about what they write in there, sometimes you realize pretty quickly, okay, they're not aware what they're writing in there. They're 
they don't know their targets. Quite often it can be quite a short conversation that is needed to assess the credibility of those flashy, flashy reports, right? And then for me, the other important part is also how they integrate this topic within um, the company. So you have companies where, for example, you sit with the CEO and CFO and there's also the IR. And um, when it comes to sustainability, CEO and CFO look quite quickly to the IR and it's like, okay, hey, let I let you tackle this ESG question, you know. And so you realize, okay, it's not top of mind for CEO, CFO. It's something they let investor relations handle it. And others say, hey, for us, it's so important. You know, they're really a um, member of our management team, the sustainability people. They're integrated with, with our whole product innovation, product management teams. They're really part of our company. So that gives you also a sense how credible, but also how feasible it is what they try to achieve, right? So um, I, I really like those conversations. So they provide you great insights. Mm. Thanks. That's, that's very helpful in terms of you know, management challenge and what are the kind of key tricks you're looking for uh, to to really, you know, uh, to get them to back up what they're actually saying in their, in their reports. Um, um, in terms of those reports themselves, what are you looking for in terms of kind of data, uh, data history? Uh, for example, you, you talked about um, making sure that the path that management team are on and forecasting that path and where that path is achievable. Um, uh, how are you building that uh, that model to um, um, to kind of assess whether they on the path and staying on the path? As I mentioned uh, quickly previously, so we have our sustainability team that takes care of this climate engine where we do all the data crunching. So we even don't have to go through the sustainability reports for that. We have all all the access to that data directly. So they make sure we, we have all um, this information available. The most important thing we do in a quantitative way is that we assess the emissions pathway of each company. So we assess for each company, how is their expected emission pathways, a pathway um, looking into the future. And then we compare their pathway then with the sector pathway so that we also compare apples with apples. And what we want to make sure is that every company we invest in either is a direct contributor to to the transition, so like the usual suspects like a solar and wind company, or if it's not this direct contributor, then the company has to be at least on the same pathway as the sector, um, so on a pathway to net zero by, by 2050. This is what we do on the quantitative um, side. But when I look at sustainability reports, for me, there's much more information in there than just data. So first of all, the size of the report, um, it depends also on the company size, but sometimes you have a big company, which is 20 pages, then you realize, okay, they 
they would have the money, the resources to do a larger report. They just don't care that much. So that's already some information. But then a net zero target by 2050 doesn't tell you anything because 2050 management won't be in place in most cases, right? Yeah. So we care, do you have like more short-term targets? Do you have a tangible climate action plan? Do you already have examples what you achieved in the past? So I, I really like this qualitative part as well because this topic is so much about credibility and this credibility you find more easily in the qualitative information than quantitative. Also because the quantitative information in, is in most cases on an annual basis, so you also don't get that many data points over time. They're really insightful. And then combined with discussions with management, you get a yeah, pretty good picture mm. where the company stands. And I think in general, the principle, certainly from a shareholder return perspective, is that if management are on top of these you know, key items is usually because they're top on many other items in their in their business and the landscape anyway, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. a, it's a very much interlinked. You know, good management will already have a grasp of the key topics within climate and climate transition, and as a result, they're more likely to offer better shareholder, long term shareholder value and return. So I think it's a key that you know profitability is also very and management quality is also very consistent with our point of view. Again, because I think climate change, the, 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 the challenge for management <clears throat> is not a philosophical one. It's really something they need to manage. It's changed and they need to manage. So if you're a good manager, you're able to manage change well, right? So it's... Yeah. No, exactly. It's yeah. not unique it, in that regard. Correct. Yeah, it doesn't really... Uh, uh, it, you know, it, it very much aligned with, with shareholder value and shareholder value sort of practice. Um, let's move on to controversies, right? Because not every company is perfect. You know, really good companies sometimes make mistakes or something happened that they didn't really anticipate. Um, how do you think about controversies? I think it comes back again to credible commitment. Um, so you can make mistakes um, so it, it's just a question, why did you do this mistake? So was it on purpose? Because actually you have a totally different agenda um, that you're pursuing. So that's why we see this result uh, or this action or whatever. Or is it just because, yeah, you didn't know better? Because I think in general, when it comes to sustainability, to climate, it's it's very complex and it's fast moving. It's changing from all angles. So on the policy levels or so regulations, um, companies, what they have to comply with. So it's very fast paced and we are far from being in the perfect end zone, right? So I think during that time, the most important is that we're all like transparent about what we're doing, what are our assumptions, how do we try to do the best, and then mistakes can happen, but you, you understand our approach and why this could happen then. No, exactly. Uh, the reason why I bring that up is that um, something not many people know on this podcast, or actually even within EFG, is that my uh, a very long time ago, I won't give the uh, date, very long time ago, my MBA thesis was working with uh, one of the rivers authorities in the UK, in fact, f directly for the CEO. And um, they, at that time, had a number of spillages, chemical spillages, um, that they initiated, which was horrible, 
for them uh, because they were in the business of cleaning up rivers rather than um, polluting them. Um, and so there was a, a, a huge problem that they had to deal with. Uh, and uh, one of my thesis was how to, um, uh, or that you should have in place to ensure they measure and they're able to clean up and there's, a, there's an action plan if there's a mistake in what they should be doing. Um, and I learned quite a lot from that process. I said it was in the 90s, so it wasn't in the 80s, and anyone thinks I'm a bit older than that, but it was in the 90s. But it was very, very early on, and certainly from my part, you know, I understood sustainability probably more quickly and more earlier than many other people because of that particular MBA thesis and that uh, particular uh, exercise. Uh, but having an action plan a clean-up action plan, and then it's well thought out and actionable because many people, you know, will probably write a procedure, leave it on the bookshelf and collect dust and no one ever really updated it or even looked at it again. Uh, but the key thing is that kind of measurement and making sure that, um, you know, action plans are in place because companies do make mistakes. And I think that's quite important to 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 understand uh, and that sustainability of that of those action plans is is quite critical. So moving on to the strategy itself, um, uh, Melanie, in terms of, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about some of the features. So can you maybe just give us a little bit of insight into the kind of geographic split? Um, you know, obviously Europe is quite leading in this. You know, is there a bias towards that? Mm -hmm. um, what sort of uh, sector allocations would there? And, and maybe we could talk about, you know, one or two of the uh, top 10 companies that you are uh, invested in. When it comes to the regional allocation, the portfolio is diversified across um, the three um, ma main regions. But um, as you already hinted a bit, um, we have an overweight in, in Europe, uh, which is just a natural result um, given our climate transition focus, slight underweight of US stocks. In terms of sector allocation, again, we invest in almost every sector. I think the only exception is uh, real estate and depending on the allocation, sometimes we own uh, one, two energy stocks, sometimes we don't. But in general, we have like um, almost like all the other competitors, uh, an overweight in the industrials, um, materials and utilities and uh, an underweight in financials and tech. Also, again, if you compare against other major products, funds with a climate focus, we're very uh, diversified. So in, in terms of sector allocation, we're among, amongst the well, um, most well diversified on, on this side. A question that often also comes up is regarding like more early stage companies. So do we only invest in small caps? And that's not the case because we invest rather in companies that have already um, positive free cash flows that um, have a proven business model. So that's why in that regard, when it comes to market cap allocation, it's pretty much aligned um, with the global equity universe. So majority of companies in the large cap space. In terms of um, top holdings, so we touched upon slightly already on the first uh, transition sector power generation. So maybe um, coming to the transport sector, which is another important transition sector here, it's mainly about the transition from the combustion engine to electric vehicles. I think here it's also very interesting if you look at regulations. So it's just very clear that pressure comes from that side. So from 2025 onwards, the sale of combustion engine cars is banned in Norway. In the 
UK, it's then from 2035. So what is expected is by 2030, 60% of all new car sales um, are electric. And so we invest in companies that benefit from this transition. For example, um, battery manufacturers are um, a good example here. Um, there are some players also um, based in Asia um, that have a strong focus also on developing um, environmentally friendly uh, solutions here that implement closed loop systems or then also companies, for example, exposed to the railway sector. Because if if you uh, look at how the world is expected to develop, we will have 70% of the global population living in urban areas by 2050. And um, how do you get people back and forth? Um, the most environmentally friendly mode of transportation is railway. So um, here also we have regulations supporting this also with the latest developments in, in Europe. So there are players that uh, focus on energy efficient rail solution, uh, solutions in general, sustainable mobility solutions. Another important sector is, is uh, buildings and construction. Here it's more about the transition from high emitting buildings to net zero buildings. Net zero building is like a building with say like a net zero emission footprint. A player we like here is um, a global leader in air conditioning equipment. I think when you think about global warming and you have a player that is able to provide energy efficient air conditioners and uh, use a special refrigerants with a very low global warming potential, this is very attractive um, and also supported again, for example, with the US regulations, the Inflation Re Reduction Act that helps these companies. The last um, transition sector to mention uh, is agriculture, future of food, uh, where we have to transition to a regenerative agriculture. So because we have, again, with the rising population, um, increasing food demand, uh, problem of food security, and um, also water challenge. Um, when you look at agriculture, it accounts for about 70% of global freshwater use and uh, two-thirds about the, of the world's population experience severe water scarcity uh, during at least one month of the year. So there's really also, again, a big challenge we need to solve. So we focus, for example, on uh, water companies, so water technology providers that benefit from this trend uh, of um, replacing an aging water infrastructure of water scarcity so that um, contribute here to solutions that can help um, uh, in that regard. Or also like really food and beverage uh, manufacturers that have, because of their size, also the means to really instigate change. So there are players that invest over a billion in the next uh, two years to uh, foster, to drive um, the uh, transition to regenerative agriculture. And regenerative agriculture um, is about improving soil health, soil fertility. Um, so all these topics come here in place. So um, how we can um, increase the yield, nutrition value of crops, how we can um, develop new uh, water irrigation methods, um, yeah, topics like that. So it's really a broad range of companies we need for this uh, successful transition. And that's where we invest. One question obviously comes up quite a lot in, in these types of strategies is, 
uh, is beta, right? So, uh, you know, are we typically targeting a beta that's very similar to world equities or is higher or lower? What's your, uh, you know, what, what's the typical target range here? We also have a strong uh, uh, focus on beta in that case for, for that um, strategy. Beta tends to be usually a bit higher, maybe around 1.0205. This is about the range where we usually sit especially because of our um, high industrials exposure um, we, we 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 land there but um, we manage it carefully uh, monitor it with our risk analysis team so um, we make sure from a portfolio perspective we're also okay it is quite important um, because uh, you know the history of such strategies has always been very high beta and I think uh, it's kind of we're you know, quite keen to get across that this is uh, very much uh, an all-weather strategy um, across the different sort of cycles and, and uh, um, you know, be it sort of value growth cycles or indeed, um, uh, you know, markets that are, you know, challenging or, or easier. And I think that's a kind of key thing or key message that I think we um, uh, certainly, uh, uh, you know, need to, uh, need to get across. So, Melanie, so thank you very much for uh, taking the time to take us through the portfolio, uh, through the philosophy, uh, through your background and the, and the politics. Uh, I think uh, it's a very interesting debate uh, and uh, I would say a very nice optimistic view of uh, climate transition uh, and the future of the world. And uh, certainly we are the ever optimists. So uh, thank you very much. That wraps us up for today. Uh, and please listen to us again. And if you have any questions, please reach out to me directly. Thank you very much and have a great day. Bye.